Well, we are starting a series on miracles, and we're going to start this series by looking at the story of uh, Jesus turning water into wine. And so the title for today is New Wine, and we're going to talk, if you, we're going to talk a lot about wine today. So, uh, so I think it'll be interesting. Uh, uh, let me just frame, we're going to let me just frame the background of this discussion on, on wine, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into some details. But drinking wine during biblical times was both common and essential. So if you lived during the time of Jesus, everybody drank wine. It's a, it was a regular practice, and it was essential. It was the way that you could purify water. Water was hard to come by, and so the way that you could purify water is by mixing it with wine, and that would preserve it. A few factoids. The, uh, the way that uh, people drank wine then was by mixing it with water. And so it was typically a three-to-one ratio, three water, to, uh, to, one, uh, to one wine. And that would work out to be an alcohol percentage of about 2.75 to 3%, so half a beer. But that's, uh, that's what it was. And when the Bible talks about strong drink, what it's referring to is wine that is undiluted. So there is no ratio. There's just, it's just straight wine. That would be described as strong drink. Back then, there was no such thing as distilleries. And so the strongest wine that you could have would be about 12%, just to give context. There's uh, somebody who wrote during the time of Jesus, and this is how they described what wine was like. This is a Greek speaking. In daily intercourse, to those who mix and drink wine moderately, it gives good cheer. If you overstep the bounds, it brings violence. Mix it half and half, and you get madness, unmixed, bodily collapse. So uh, that was one person's understanding of, uh, of wine during that time. There is 247 references to alcohol in the Bible. 145 of those, which is the predominance, is actually positive. And we're going to talk about those positive references in just a moment. 40 of the references are negative. Negative primarily in the excess of drinking wine, but also specifically toward priests and kings, those who have devoted themselves to God, that it is recommended that you don't drink wine at all. And so that's something interesting. And then the, the last 62 references are just quite neutral. It's neither saying that it's good or bad, it's just, it was just part of the story. In the New Bible Dictionary, this is a kind of a summary that was given that I find to be helpful in terms of how the Old Testament speaks about wine. These two aspects of wine, its use and its abuse, the benefits and its curse, its acceptance in God's sight and its abhorrence are interwoven into the fabric of the Old Testament so that it may gladden the heart of man or cause his mind to err. It, might, it can be associated with merriment or with anger. It can be used to uncover the shame of Noah or in the hands of Melchizedek to honor Abraham. So we see inside of the Bible, we see almost opposites in describing what wine, uh, it, how wine is being used. It can be really, really great, or it can be really, really bad. And we find both of those descriptions in Scripture. So aside from its practical use, the Old Testament describes wine as having two benefits. We're going to look at those benefits in the Old Testament, look at what it says in the New Testament, and then draw some conclusions. 
the two benefits. First, wine is described as gladdening the heart. In Psalm 101.15, it says, He makes wine that gladdens human hearts. Judges 9.13 says something very similar. And this gladdening of the heart is either personally or corporately. So you get together for a celebration or for a party, and wine is part of that, makes everybody happy. Now, what's interesting about this description of it gladdening the heart is that there's a reference in particular to a certain group of people. And they're described in Proverbs 31, 6 to 7. It says, give strong drink, that's the undiluted stuff, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget the poverty and remember his trouble no more. There seems to be a reference given that if your life is, if, if you're in poverty, or even if your life is meaningless, that you just don't see any future, there's no hope, then have some wine. That seemed to be the focus of the people who uh, recommended that they would drink. This is, kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15.32, where it says that if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The idea being, if there is nothing greater going on, well, then go ahead and drink. Because uh, at least you'll have at least some kind of temporal enjoyment because there's nothing else going on in the eternal realm. So the first Old Testament purpose of wine is to gladden the heart. The second is that it purifies us from sin. In Leviticus 23, 12 and 13, we've got lots of verses today, sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb a year old without defect, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hen of wine, which is about 0.9 liters, just a little under a liter of wine. And so what we find is that in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system uh, included not just the sacrificing of an animal that was foreshadowing the forgiveness of sins, but also the giving of wine. Now, you and I know in our context, that the, the lamb and the wine represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And this is all was a foreshadowing of that reality. So we see then that the primary use of wine is actually as a symbol of us somehow being cleansed, just as water was cleansed from its impurities, that, uh, that wine would cleanse us from our impurities and put us in right standing with God, figuratively speaking. So, did anything then change in the New Testament? Well, we do see significant changes. The first mention of wine in the book of John is what we've already talked about, John, uh, Jesus turning water into wine. It's, uh, it's at the very beginning of his ministry. He's going to a wedding with his, uh, with his family. The uh, groom's parents run out of wine, super embarrassing. They don't know what to do. Mary says, I think my son can help. And so, uh, so they, they call upon him. They take, which is very significant, some stone jars. Those jars were purification jars. And then they fill them up with water. He prays, poof, it becomes wine, and everybody's super happy for all kinds of reasons, I can imagine. And, uh, and they have wine at the wedding. Now, uh, does this story validate drinking wine? Is that what's going on? I have heard more than one person tell me, uh, hey, if Jesus turns water into wine, 
good enough for me. And this is kind of the validation that everything about alcohol is a thumbs up with Jesus because this is the first miracle that he performed in the book of John. I think that's a relatively superficial interpretation of the text. And the way that we can understand what's really going on is summarized in verse 11 of John chapter 2. It says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now, is this glory that I can churn all things into alcohol? Is that the, the glory of God? And his disciples believed in him. What is this a sign about? What is the sign about? Well, it can be summarized in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So here's what's going on in this story. You have a, a culture uh, that understands the significance of wine. They, they know that it's, uh, it was for the purification of sins. They run out of wine. And uh, what Jesus is saying in this, through those purification jars, he's saying, I am the better wine. One of the primary reasons why we can enjoy alcohol is it buries our guilt. It's a way to manage guilt. And he's saying, you no longer have to, have to drown yourself in guilt. I'm actually a better response to guilt in that I, I erase the guilt itself and I purify you from sin. My blood is the better wine. And this is a sign of what I'm coming to do at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We already see a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of that ministry through his death and resurrection. So instead of, trying, uh, instead of us trying to forget our sins, Jesus actually forgives our sins. That's better. That's better. It's a better thing going on than drinking wine. It's the first change, I think, that we see. Let's look at the second one. That was about purifying us from sin. We now have a, a sacrifice once for all to deliver us from the penalty and power of sin. Well, what about wine in terms of gladness? Now, uh, wine and the Holy Spirit are contrasted in a number of different passages in the New Testament. We'll look at two in particular. In Luke 1.15, it says, this is speaking about John the Baptist, John is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it seems as though there was two choices. You could either be filled with wine or you could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, he, and, and this verse is saying that John's life is about being filled with the Spirit of God, not needing fermented drink. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, this is a verse that's uh, often referred to when alcohol is being discussed. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. The idea of debauchery is all kind of, of physical or bodily indulgences. And I've talked to many people who have described that in order to work up a good sin, alcohol helps. Uh, it kind of gets you in the right mood to do things that maybe ought not to be done. But so do not get drunk on wine, which leads to all kinds of things that you wouldn't do in your right mind. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And it goes on to say in verse 19, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. The Holy Spirit seems to be offering to us a better kind of joy, a deeper, more profound joy, and a joy, get this, that is not simply trying to bury feeling meaningless or 
impoverished or going through. It's not trying to bury anything. The, the work of the Holy Spirit is actually full of hope. That the, that the, the joy that Jesus brings is actually a foreshadowing of a new heaven and a new earth where all suffering is removed and we're able to enjoy him and one another forever. And so this kind of joy is hope-based, not in the absence of hope, but the presence of hope. And it also leaves no regret. It's the kind of joy that you don't have to uh, try to remember what you did the night before. And uh, I think that's a profound thought. Those of you who have been part of our church for a while, you know that every year we, um, we have our Christmas banquet. It's a highlight of the year. And if you haven't noticed, uh, we don't serve alcohol there for lots of different reasons. But let me tell you one of them. In that Christmas banquet, I think it's just a whole lot of fun. We have an amazing meal. It's always an amazing meal. We have great worship and singing Christmas carols. Uh, this year, we had uh, kind of a, a spoof on AGT uh, that was ENV. I think the right title should be ENV sometimes has talent. Because um, <laughs> there was a few that, anyways. So, uh, but it's... It's, you know, so, so we did that. That was a lot of fun. We could laugh at ourselves. And then, uh, and then we have a dance. And then everybody just gets to, uh, except for me, of course, uh, let loose on the dance floor. I love watching you, and you would not enjoy watching me. I can, I can assure you of that. And so that's just, it's just a lot of fun. Now, here's what's interesting about people who don't regularly attend our church, perhaps don't know Jesus. And here's what they'll say. I haven't seen... A group of people having that much fun sober. I've never seen that before. And there's something is being uh, revealed in that moment about the life of the Spirit. That there's a, there's a kind of joy that doesn't require intoxication in order to enter into it. It requires the presence of the Spirit of God. And the great news is nobody has to regret what they did the night before. Uh, because it was done in the grace of God. Acts 2.38 is one of my favorite summaries of the Christian message. I just think it says it so well in one verse. Repent and be baptized. Turn toward Jesus and be baptized. Represent that through, uh, through dying to yourself and living by faith in Christ, being baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for two reasons, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what we find in the very core of the gospel is alternatives to having to drink wine. Instead of trying to bury your guilt, you can actually have your guilt removed. Well, this is incredible. That I'm no longer compensating for my guilt. I'm actually rid of guilt. And I think you and I would be surprised as to how much guilt actually motivates us every day. In Christ, that can all be removed. And then when it comes to your sadness, you don't have to bury your sadness either. That you can actually find in the Holy Spirit a joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. This is absolutely incredible. And it's fascinating to me that the core of the gospel is somehow shown in contrast to the use of wine in the Old Testament. So, Here's the grand question for the legalists in the crowd. Here's the grand question. Uh, does the Bible forbid drinking? 
Okay, you can just, this is the moment. Uh, no. No, the Bible does not forbid drinking. You, can, you can't find that anywhere. It for sure forbids being drunk. It never forbids drinking. Now, if that's all that you, like, don't leave now. But if, but if, if, that's, all, if that's all that you came for, then, then that's, you know, this is not the point. All right? Here's what, you, here's what you need to hear, and I think this is incredibly important. The Bible does not uh, forbid drinking. Get this. It makes drinking unnecessary. It's unnecessary because something better has come along, and his name is Jesus, and the power of the Spirit is a better alternative to the things that wine can offer you and I. Now, for those of you who, uh, who maybe, you know, wine or whatever isn't your thing, uh, this is, let's just put coffee out there just for a second. <laughs> just for a minute, in case you weren't feeling bad before, let me help you. And uh, uh, coffee is a stimulant. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of amens, uh, but let me continue. Uh, you don't need to drink coffee. You don't need that buzz. You get to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What if our uh, consuming of certain beverages is still living in the Old Testament and not realizing the fullness that could be had in Christ and by his spirit. What if that's what's going on? Interesting thought. So let me ask you, how do you handle guilt and sadness? How do you handle those two things? When we look at the first sin committed in Genesis chapter 3, we saw how Adam and Eve handled their guilt. What did they do? They masked it. They sewed fig leaves. Doesn't seem super effective. But they, uh, they tried to hide their guilt. I think we still do these things. I think we often compensate for guilt instead of be healed of our guilt through Christ. How do you deal with sadness? Do you, do you, do you look for a way to distract yourself, if only for a minute? What's your go-to substance? to try to forget your worries and to just be happy for a little while, even though there might be consequences, at least I could forget my sadness for a bit. Now, please, uh, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that as Christians we won't feel guilt, and for sure we will all feel sadness at times. That's not the point. The point is what do we do with our guilt and what do we do with our sadness that isn't just a masking over, but is actually a healing. And the gospel is how those issues are healed. The title of this series is Miracles. And this is an incredible miracle. That uh, we would replace guilt and sadness with lasting peace and joy in Christ. That's a miracle. It makes more sense to take matters into our own hands, literally, and to deal with our guilt and sadness in ways that are obvious, obvious and tangible. 
And the miracle is that there's actually something better than what we can give ourselves, that we can receive a gift from God that could actually heal the core of the problem and not just smooth it over cosmetically. In John 4.10, Jesus is described as being living water. And the invitation that we are given, I believe, in Scripture is to be intoxicated by him. Now, this I find incredibly convicting. Uh, I don't know that I've been, I don't know that I've been drunk. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, but I have experienced many times being absolutely overwhelmed with the presence of God. What does it for me, uh, I'm not saying that it would do it for you, but I love theology. I love reading my Bible. I love reading books about Jesus and his word. And sometimes I can hardly handle it. I'm so overwhelmed by his goodness and power and beauty and majesty. I feel like my chest is going to burst open. I feel intoxicated the presence of God. Here's the challenge. I don't know that we can experience the miracle of being touched by Christ if we fill those places of guilt and sadness with something prematurely. And as we take matters into our own hands and deal with those things in our own ways, we shut the door on being able to experience Christ in the way that he, uh, can I say, should be experienced. Not with moral obligation, but with awe and delight. One of the primary complaints that I hear people give about Christianity is they say, I tried it for a bit, and it just didn't give me the buzz or the experience that I was hoping for. I hear that often. What if the reason why we don't experience Christ the way that we imagine we should be experiencing him is because we've already intoxicated ourselves with something else? We've already dealt with our guilt and dealt with our sadness in whatever uh, drug of choice, you know, we partake of. And then we go, you know, I just don't feel Jesus the way I think I should. Uh, I am excited about you and I creating greater space to discover the beauty and wonder of God by not running after alternatives. I'm excited to consider that with you. Let me give, that was the conclusion. Let me give a second conclusion because I can't resist. First Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen people. Now get how you and I are described. If you describe yourself as a Christian, this is, how, this is you and I. We're a royal priesthood. Now, who were the two groups of people in the Old Testament 
who were commanded not to drink, royalty and priests. Let that sit only for a moment. But what if we struggle to do our priestly work? What if we struggle to walk in the dignity and strength of God because we have diluted our devotion to him? What if that's true? What if it's true? Would we be willing to so hunger and thirst for him, so hunger, be so hungry to, to long to do his work and to walk with him that we would give up other forms of, uh, of having a gladdened heart and of dealing with our guilt. I think that as Christians, we have a different standard than the world. I really do. I think it's a double standard. And I think we're called to a higher standard. Now, do, the moral of this the moral of this sermon is not for you to not drink. That's not the moral of this sermon. The moral is that we would grab hold of the gospel in ways that God designed it to be embraced. Uh, just by way of reference, I, I try to drink. I don't enjoy, I don't really enjoy it. I try to drink uh, a sip of wine a few times a year just so I won't be religious. I don't really enjoy it. I, for those of you who like beer, I don't get it. I don't get it. I try. It. For those of you who like coffee, I don't get that either. I just, they say it's an acquired taste, and it's true, and I have not acquired it. Uh, but I'm not doing those things. I'm not trying to be religious. I'm not trying to be good. That's not what's going on for me. I'm trying to understand not my call as a pastor, but my call as a Christian that I would be full of the Spirit. I would be full of the forgiveness and life of God. And I just really don't want anything to come in the way of that. And so uh, I, 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 uh, this is a matter, though, of conscience, and this is what we'll end with, this 1 Corinthians 6.12. This is the, he's quoting, Paul is quoting somebody in this first phrase. He says, I have the right to do anything, and it's true. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do every, anything. Not everything is beneficial. I've, I've actually preached this sermon two earlier times today. Once was in Montreal via Zoom, and the other was in Surrey. And I talked to somebody after the service who I know was a, um, uh, 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 was an addict. And I go, you know, what do you think about that sermon? And he says, I've really had to work this through that I know that in Christ, I'm free to drink. I know that. I know that. I've decided not to. But he says, I've decided not to, not so much for my benefit, but for the people in my AA group. I made a choice to do something that I think would benefit them. And so I've decided to be completely sober. He says, it doesn't feel like a religious decision to me. I don't feel guilted out by it. He says, this is the decision that I've made that I think is beneficial, not just for me. He says, I don't, it's been a long time, so I don't feel tempted anymore, but you never know. But it's more about benefiting others. Well, that was interesting. But let's complete the verse. It says, I have a right to do anything. This person's repeating themselves, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that is the rule 
that if you call yourself a Christian, you must abide by. You can't get drunk. Uh, then we are out of control and we have given ourselves over to something that is not the spirit of God and that's out of bounds for us. So everything is permissible. Not everything is beneficial and I won't be mastered by anything. And this is the chance for you and I to come before God and to wrestle with this. I don't think there's some clean answer. I don't see it in scripture. We see scripture being, you know, Paul telling Timothy to take some wine for his stomach. There's no, uh, there's not legalism. I don't see it in this area in scripture. I don't see it. But here's what I'm worried about, and we'll end. I'm worried that as a community, we will just be happy that we get to drink, and it's okay. That's what I'm worried about. Um, I pray that as a church, we would not be concentrating so much on where the line is between sin and not sin, but that we would run into the gospel and into the life of Christ. This is what I long for us as a community. That we're not, first of all, judging one another. That would be horrible. Um, but that we would say, this isn't about figuring out what I'm allowed and not allowed to do. I have been given an invitation to receive something greater. And will I run toward that and thirst and hunger for that? That, to me, is the miracle that is being described in this passage, the miracle of new life in Christ, which is the greatest of all miracles. Miracles aren't simply designed to put for, a, for a show to prove something. Miracles are a gift of life that's given to you and I, and I urge us together as to grab hold of this gift with all that's in us. Worship team, you can come forward and like to pray for us. Could we please stand together? <clears throat> Father, I can't think of an area, perhaps there is, but I can't think of an area in which people are more self-righteous in. Oh, I don't drink. That's just self-righteousness. So, Father, we cast aside being self-righteous. We cast aside even the fear of alcohol. And I thank you that within this community, there's going to be great diversity in understanding how to be responsive to you. But I do pray that we would be responsive to you. And I ask that you would stir in our hearts a vision of a life free of guilt, defined by a hope-filled joy, a life immersed in the presence of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I ask for us as a community that we would hunger and thirst after you more than all other things, and that we would even be willing to deny the pleasures of this world, that we could be filled with you, and so, Father, would you work these things out in our heart, please? We don't want to be defined by self-righteousness. We want to be defined by the life of Christ flowing in and through us.
And so please speak to us even now as we worship you.